Welcome to the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. On today's episode, we discuss Say Something Bunny, Ghost Light, Sweetie, Cost of Living, and Streep Show. Enjoy the show. Okay, we have been to many theaters, seen many shows, and we are here to talk about them. We shall start with introductions, Liz. Hi, it's Liz from Fuck Yeah, Great Plays. Jose. I'm Jose from Stage Buddy. And I'm Lindsay from Maximu. Liz, why don't you kick us off? All right, I'm going to kick us off with a show called Say Something Bunny, which is by Allison S.M. Kobayashi and Union Docs. So to back it up a little bit, Allison, through a friend of a friend, a series of events, she comes into uh, possession of an amateur audio recording device. It's a wire recorder. Uh, that came from an estate sale somewhere. And in the audio recorder box were also two spools of wire that had been recorded on. And they were two different events on two different days with the same family. So Allison obsessively listened and re-listened to these tapes. Right? Well, I guess they're not tapes. They're these wire recordings. And uses the details, even just minor overheard conversational bits on this not terribly high quality recording to put together the story of these families about 60 years ago and their day-to-day life. And uses these recordings as a way to spin out who these people were, why this recording was made, uh, what the significance was, and sort of a a slice of life of New York in, what, the 40s, 1947, I think? She pins down the whole date. I really enjoyed this show. I don't know about the rest of you. I thought it was fascinating listening to the way... Allison was able to spin out one tiny bit of a conversation into a whole historical point. Things like, we keep hearing this name, and what does it mean? And then I figured out that it was the dog because of this and that, and I figured out it's this kind of dog, and I pinpointed the date because they mention a sports score, and the last time this team played this other team, and the score was this, it was on this date in 1947, and they piece the whole thing together and it's sort of like a live NPR episode almost if you like dramaturgy you will love this show and that's something I it's a part of the theatrical process that I really love is finding the little details and little bits of history to lend uh, a backbone to the rest of the piece and that's what this is this is about two hours of just piecing together a puzzle together with the rest of the audience in the room. You're sitting around a big round table. There are props. You are assigned roles. Um, You are sort of... Things about your character keep being directed to you, even though nothing ever comes of that. But it's almost like you're being prepped to go on and take on a role of someone else somewhere along the way. And... I don't. I guess you could kind of debate it how theatrical versus performance arty versus versus art installation y 
than it is, but it's a great ride. It's a hell of a ride, and I loved it. It was a great way to spend a couple of hours on a on an afternoon. I think the live action NPR story is a perfect description. That's how I've talked about this show to other people, and I've actually mentioned it to several because I think it's something that people will find really interesting if they're into new and innovative forms of performance. Allison is telling you a historical story, but she's also telling you her own story of how she investigated it and the steps she took to uncover these mysteries. And in that way, it very much reminded me of a This American Life episode or a serial episode. And so if you, if you like those podcasts, I think you would like this show. She's a super engaging performer. This is a, almost a, a one-person show. There's a technical person who helps her out. But she's in front of you the entire time telling this story. And But for her prowess and being able to capture your attention and be so lively, I think this would actually be a really difficult show to pull off. It it could be very dry. It could be very academic. And she sells it as a storyteller. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And just to clarify one thing is you are, quote unquote, assigned a role, but you're not really participating in the performance I think it's just a way of drawing you into a particular character each person yeah it definitely makes you uh, find a connection with somebody yeah so if you're queasy about audience participation there's no need yeah. to be for the I, show I did at spend all. a little while waiting for the time that I was going to have to be someone and I was very thankful when I found out that the uh, character that I was assigned was someone who refused to talk on the tape <laughs> so I didn't have I was like all right yes I won't have to do anything but nobody has to do anything even if you're the main character right you don't no, have to you don't do have to anything. do anything and it turns out that the people who are randomly captured on this recording in the late 40s and the early 50s lived really one of them in particular lived a very curious unusual life and the story that she tells about him is pretty fascinating yeah and what I love is after the fact we got an email after the show we, the performance we attended, you get an email with some updates, some facts that she's revised since she wrote it, some new video footage, some pictures of the people that she talks about versus what she thought they looked like. And it's just great. It's like an ongoing story. I mean, I think she could go back and revisit this family in 20 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that show is running through July 30th, and we checked today, and there are still tickets available. It's mostly sold out in June, but once July dates roll around, there's availability, and the tickets are only $27. Yeah, it's at the Undo Project space in Chelsea, which I'd never been to, but it is on West 20th Street out there. It looks like it's more like a dance studio almost, or an art studio. I thought it looked like an art studio. It's definitely in that Chelsea art gallery space. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Jose, what's next? I didn't get to see something funny, but I really wanted to ask if it's creepy in any way, because the way that it sounded made me think of something like the Blair Witch Project, but with sounds. No, because no one's murdered, so... Oh, okay. (laughs) No, no, not a spoiler. Nobody gets murdered. Oh, okay. (laughs) There's a whole other element to this, is which is like, if you are into art based on found objects, yeah. I think you will find this approach very interesting, especially for people who are into verbatim theater. And there's something very unique about a piece of theater that is exploring 
people's lives based on a sound recording and the permission that is implied when you are recording someone that you desire for other people to listen to it as opposed mm. to other shows I've seen based on personal correspondence where I felt very creepy about these people's lives being exploited for the purpose of the performance and they clearly had not given their permission. And I did not feel that way in this performance at all because it was, it seemed like there was an implied desire for other people to hear a recording if you're making the recording. That's the whole point. Yeah, and I think that a portion of the show is really about why are they recording this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at this point in time. And that sort of gets unraveled uh, during the course of the show as well. Okay, next up. Okay, so I guess that I, I just I was I was trying to find if there was a segue between uh, that element of the show and our next show, which is Ghost Light at Lincoln Center Theater. And I guess the only thing that I could find as anything similar is the importance of the objects that are left behind in specific places. And in this case, uh, this is a production by Third Rail, uh, Third Rail Projects, which you probably know for Then She Fell and The Grand Paradise. They do this site-specific, immersive, epic experiences. I don't know any other way to describe them. And in this case, they got together with Lincoln Center Theater to do an immersive show at the Claire Toe, Tau, whatever, theater, the one upstairs from the Vivian Beaumont. And this is essentially a ghost story, as the, uh, as the title says. A ghost light, I didn't know what a ghost light was before going to this show, but a ghost light is a light that's left centers, at the center of the stage. It's, yeah, it's the light that you leave on when you're closing up a theater for the night. It's the light that you leave on for safety reasons as well as for... You know, the ghosts. Superstition, yeah. So yeah, as people, well as superstition. So people won't break their necks and become the next ghost exactly. that haunts the theater, Exactly. It's basically. just a, a basic uh, light bulb on a stick, basically. So when, when you arrive to this space, you are divided into groups and you are taken behind the scenes. It's, it's It made me think of the Universal Studios tour from when I was a kid, <laughs> where you go behind the scenes and you get to see the different uh, dressing rooms, the different makeup rooms, I don't even know if those are the right names, storage rooms, security rooms. And what they're doing is that they're giving you a tour of the life behind a theater by using death, by using ghosts. And even though the Claire Tau Theater and Lincoln Center in general, well, specifically, I mean, have been around only since 1960, I'm not sure, the Claire one of the newer projects. Yeah, that's I, yeah. not yeah. even no, a decade old. Yeah. yeah. So I, I like the idea that they were trying to imbue this very new, clean, wide, I don't know, sleek space with the history. So they, as usual, they have so many amazing props. Like, I wish that I could go after the show's over and just look and touch hmm. at all the weird things they have. So depending on, on, on where, what path you go on, you get to see different ghosts basically reliving the same story over and over. There's a character that's very Laurence Olivier-inspired who's trying to put on a serious Shakespeare performance, but there's a ghost from what, I, what we can only assume was someone else who once worked at the theater who's messing up the performance and turning it into a comedy. There's also a woman who poisons, him, uh, poisons herself. There's people dancing as is usually the case in third world project shows. There are these long 
interludes, I guess, where people dance, which I'm assuming is so, you know, everyone else catches up with what's going on. I felt that those dance scenes went on for a little too long at times, but I get why they're there. But I was mostly, I love ghosts. I'm both terrified and obsessed with ghosts. And what I love the most was that it's not, you know, it's not a story meant to scare you. It's not a haunted house. Instead, what they're doing, playwright Zach Morris, who uh, wrote this but conceived it and directed it with Janine Willette, what they're doing is that they're basically trying to study all the different kinds of ghosts that inhabit theaters. And it's not only the supernatural, you know, spooky dead person with chains and a giant dress or headless people walking around, but also the ghosts of scenes that are caught from the final production or the ghosts of understudies who never get to play the part, or even the memories that audience members leave behind once they they leave the theater. I guess that in the dance moments that I found the dullest in the in the performance were the times where I went into like a more introspective meditation space and started thinking all these things about ghosts. There's this one scene that I didn't feel work completely, but in which one of the characters who we've seen before as a ghost becomes a character and he's talking about how he's being written at that moment by a playwright. And again, that's like, I don't know, it's like a Russian doll structure of ghosts. Ghosts, ghosts, ghosts everywhere. So, but, but I was dying to, because we're not allowed to talk to people when we're in the show, but I was dying to know and ask you, Liz, if the show was maybe romanticizing theater too much, because I have never, I mean, I've been behind the scenes a few times, but I've never gotten like that, that much of a tour, I guess. And I was wondering, were you like, this is bullshit. It's not as romantic and it's not as fun. No, I actually, I thought it was a very loving homage to the, the romantic work that goes on behind a show because people are really putting their their love and their sweat and everything else into it. And then all you ever see as an audience member is the final project. And there are so many things that get left behind um, on the way to the final production. And so that's what it made me think about, not just the ghosts of, thing of, of actors who have passed or whatnot, but the, the beautiful scene I don't know Jose and I were together for 90% of the show mm. we got yeah. split up at the beginning and then we both got together and we were in the same group almost the whole time never saw Lindsay never um, but when they pulled us into a room and it was the room of cut lines mm-hmm. I, where they were pulling down the boxes and it was just boxes full oh, yeah. of lines that were pulled from plays and they said they were they were witty but they didn't serve the plot or they were too maudlin or what have you and another moment where they talk about characters that had to be cut for one reason. Like, the way things get shed on the way to the next step, I thought was very beautiful. Um, But with Say Something Bunny, the two reminded me, or, or sort of spoke to each other, I guess, with the way we remember people. And we remember people in performance, and when we witness something that we have to piece them together from what we can remember of them, which I think is true of theater and is sort of true of 
the the recordings that are in Say Something Bunny and the way uh, plays come and go in Ghostlight. Hmm. Um, Did we all basically see the same show but in different order? I don't know. We haven't talked about yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, let's see, well, you and I started at the same spot yeah. with the So fifth the lines show, or the lines scene, was the last scene I saw. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, and we started off with the 15 minutes to places. Oh, you did? That was where we started. God, that is an amazing scene. It's just like, um, oh, what was it It's called? like in a hallway, yeah. 15, 10, 5 minutes before the performance and you just see these actors and supporting staff racing through this hallway and changing costumes and you know prepping for the show all sped up to you know a scene that takes place over I don't know two minutes maybe Mm -hmm. and everything is so tightly choreographed and it they they perform the whole scene and then they perform it a second time. I, I just thought it was so interesting. Yeah, just on the beat over and over. Like and the, the ritual of it is so. It was like those nice. Scooby Doo cartoons where there's like doors and ghosts, and when they're following the ghosts to try yes. to find them. Yeah. But there's, now that I mentioned that scene, there was a line in the show that really haunted me. I, oh, God, no pun intended, I, <laughs> I swear. But it really stayed with me. And it's like when one of the divas, I guess, one of the grand dames or whatever uh of theater within this world is talking to us about how one day art doesn't matter and they don't matter obviously she's talking about you know the idea of aging and all of that but i felt that she was also talking about the idea of art and the idea of theater itself and there's a moment when she says what once was luminous is then regarded as only a gimmick and i wondered Oh God, I I never want to be that person who goes to something like this and think of it only as a gimmick. But then I, I I'm sure that there were people who were like, I've had enough of this. Like, I've like, seen yeah. an immersive show. Yeah. I I do appreciate the way Third Rail curates these experiences. Yes. Um, if you're going into this expecting sleep no more, it's not. It is much more structured than that. Thank God. It is much more guided. <laughs> On the one hand, I wanted to play with all of those props, much like Jose. I wanted to go and investigate. I'm sure they can't let you for many stage magic reasons. Um, but it is very well guided. You feel like you're on a path. Um, I, I personally want to shout out the stage management for this show because this show runs like clockwork, mm. and that is thanks to their stage management team, I am sure, Let's see, it's Kristen Nook, Stephanie Armitage, Nick Auer, and Jack Cummins um, keeping that show. That has got to be a tightly run show, especially when we saw it. We saw it at 10 o'clock at night, which I highly recommend if you can go late night. It's very spooky. But to do that show twice in one night and have to keep Mm. resetting it and making sure everything is precise and timely is amazing. Well, there are a minimum of 15 performance spaces, and they're all timed exactly yeah. And there's a reason we didn't see each other. We're not intended to have seen each yeah. other, right? Like, occasionally you'll get a glimpse of some other audience members. I mean, you don't even see people moving space to space. It's, it's shocking how many people are fit into this performance space and how rarely you see other people. And mm-hmm. slowly it gets revealed how interconnected all these rooms are, which makes sense. Obviously, people move through the theater 
invisibly for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. That's how theaters are constructed. But I, like Jose, have never really been behind the scenes. So seeing all these stage doors and all these stairs and how you could move from one place to another and that scene we talked about where you're in the hallway and there are these doors and the people are passing through them and this countdown to the curtain, you then get to go into the side rooms and experience that same scene from these different perspectives. And the level of coordination was just mind-blowing. And I was so just... I know they didn't want you to come away being so thrilled at their technical feat. That's not the point of the show. But, (laughs) my my God, the technical feat of the show is unbelievable. Yeah. Well, it it reminded me a lot of working on a long-running show where everyone involved has their ritual, it's all timed out, and your your personal path overlaps with everyone else's slightly, but it's kind of the same thing every night. And so that's... I, I, like, I kept seeing that poor guy with the lobsters. I was like, I think that's all this man does in this show, is run in with lobsters, leave with lobsters, run in with lobsters, leave with lobsters. For, I don't know, 45 minutes? I saw him do some other stuff. Okay. <laughs> there are definitely scenes... Well. I can't say for certain, but I feel strongly that there are probably scenes that you guys saw that I didn't see, just because there seem to be characters who I'm imagining played a larger role than I witnessed. Mm -hmm. So I'm imagining that this is a show where if you went back a second time, it wouldn't just be that you were seeing the scenes in a different order, but that you were seeing also some different scenes. Yeah, there is one character in particular, one of the ghosts, that I barely saw until the end mm-hmm. so i feel like i missed not, not that I, I don't feel like i missed is. out i still feel like i got a full experience of the show yep where i didn't realize i had missed something until he came out at the end and i went oh where has that guy been this whole time well that's the brilliance of third rail yeah. which is that they make these immersive productions but they ensure that every person who participates get a gets a quality experience unlike sleep no more where you may be paying upwards of a hundred dollars for a ticket and have a totally crap experience (laughs) if you don't happen to be in the right place at the right time or you have a very obnoxious audience who is sort of hogging the scene stealing moments and you're just like getting pushed to the back of the crowd all the time like i think third rail does immersive performances better than any other organization that i've ever seen do immersive performances i i as people know on the podcast, I don't particularly like immersive shows. I don't like participatory theater. And this is a show where you will be participating. And so if that is just a non-starter for you, then this isn't the show for you. But they are so welcoming and encouraging and directive for how you're supposed to participate that I don't find it intimidating. I don't feel like I'm being humiliated. I'm just being asked to do a simple task like hold a set of flowers or you know, put on what they a had hat you do? or something like that. <laughs> I mean, I, I did some of those things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but the other thing I want to emphasize about third rail is that they're a dance company and their shows are very movement based. And I just think I, I just, there was a scene where we stood a, above the, the theater where the audience would sit in the Claire Tau and saw a duet. Did you guys see that scene? Yeah, down in the, in the seats. Yeah, yeah, I just thought that was so beautiful. And I think the meaning of that scene is like there's a performer and there's an audience member and the 
duet is an interpretation of what it feels like when you are in the zone with the performer during the performance and like so in sync and just it's this beautiful mesmerizing experience to be on the same wavelength as a performer it's like an out-of-body experience and you're moving together in unison and then the performance ends and you're still sitting in your seat and they're still on stage and I just thought it was such a beautiful representation of what theater is like when theater is at its very very best yeah so this show is still running it's been extended to August 6th. The tickets were originally $30. If you buy a ticket in the extension, it looks like they're $50. There is availability. We checked today, and towards the end of the run, towards the end of the extension, there are still tickets available. So it's not too late if you would like to check that out. I have another question. Mm-hmm. All the questions today from me. I was wondering if you had the impression that the show had been in any way sanitized or like desexualized for the uptown audience members because i remember the grand paradise being filthy and i mean that in the best way possible like it's the total compliment and what i think of theater i mean i'm not expecting orgies in a theater but i think of theater as very central and i felt that the show in a way was very desexualized i can see that i think it had its moments i thought the um the scene that I think you were there when I saw it, maybe you weren't. That was the the pair, the male and female pair, and he was trying to learn his lines, and the ghost was kind of like all over him. Oh, Did yeah. it take place it, there where was a there were a bunch of lamps? Yeah, there was like a couch and a little chest, and they were. Oh uh, yeah, I didn't know that was about learning his lines. I mean, that's what I, I thought because he had his. You're right. You're he had right. His script I thought that was like, that was the first scene I saw. Oh. So I, I actually my it maybe that colored my impression of the whole show, but it felt very romantic. Including yeah, including the scene I described about the the duet that takes place over the chairs felt very romantic, even though I don't think it was implying something romantic yeah. necessarily. I felt there was some sensual. I I do have to say that I was a little surprised for the amount of times that we were in dressing rooms that we never saw people in underwear. We saw the guy wrapped in a yeah. towel once, and that was kind of it. That, that's kind of what I mean because everyone. I mean, that, yeah, that's what I mean precisely. That, I don't know. Like, I I feel like probably there was like a board meeting, and they were like, mm, we need more clothes. Yeah. I don't think I I have to say I really disagree with that. I mean, I think Grand Paradise was. Uh, performance that took place on an island that was like a i mean how would you even describe it, it was like some it's kind hedonistic. of hedonistic sex club yeah yeah i mean it was like, it was i like, feel like grand paradise is inherently more sexual than it was the whole point of the production anyway. was about sex yeah but like their production then she fell which is about alice in wonderland but not in a like child cutesy way but in a like you know corrupted adult version of it it, I mean, it has el- elements of sexuality in it, but it's, like, not a core theme. This yeah. didn't feel sanitized to me at all, but yeah. that's just my impression. Yeah. Okay, moving on. We next are going to talk about Sweetie, which is a new musical book, music, and lyrics by Gail Kriegel. It was staged at Signature Theater 
in a fourth theater that I had not previously been in. Oh, yeah, in the studio, <laughs> the rental. Uh-huh. It's the rental space. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know it was there. So when we were going back towards it, you kind of go through a back hallway past the main theater. And I was Fast like, <laughs> I felt like I was being taken on a secret tour. It was very <laughs> thrilling. Okay, so this is a musical about a group of orphans in the 1930s. They start out in North Carolina. Is that right? North Carolina? Does anybody remember? Mm -hmm. It could be South Carolina, but I'm pretty sure it's North Carolina. And they are, they live in an orphanage where a minister is, where a minister is in charge. And um, they're joined uh, after a little while by a character named Sweetie because her mom dies. And they are a band. And that's how they, I guess they like help raise money for the orphanage uh, by playing music. And it had a little bit of a, like, school of rock vibe, like a little, like, plucky group of kids who are really good at playing music. This one guy plays a kazoo. I was like, I didn't know you could do that with a kazoo. (laughs) And the racial dynamic here is that the minister is white and the orphans are all black. And this causes a problem in the town, and they get run out of town, essentially. And... They go on the road to New Orleans where they plan to play more music and earn more money. And in the, along the way, they meet a character whose name is... Cat Jones. Cat Jones. And he is a musician, a traveling musician, and he strikes up a friendship with the kids, and sometimes they play music together. And this show, the plot of it is not hang together very well so I don't even know that I'm necessarily (laughs) describing it accurately but this is my impression of what the show is about so if it's not (laughs) I apologize and then there's conflict and Sweetie goes off with the minister and the band of youths becomes a more successful band of musicians now I'm just going to break down kind of two column style the things I liked and the things I didn't like about this show. As a whole, I didn't think it was totally successful. But I did think there were elements of it that worked and that were very interesting and that were worth potentially building upon. So I guess for starters, the band of kids was great, yeah. both in terms of like their story as a group their performances were great. Their songs were fantastic. Anytime, and I, the, I should say these were not children. The, I think these were all like either college students or gr- recent graduates. Anytime they were on stage, I was thrilled. I just thought they were so fun. The plot was, I struggled to follow. I really enjoyed the Cat Jones character, both, again, his role in the play and also that character's performance was great. The minister, no idea what he was doing there. Don't even know why he was a character. He just seemed like a complete waste. That guy's performance was great. No criticism of him. But just, like, that structure of the play and this, like, weird white guy and why he had any role in this, like, it just didn't make any sense to me. But I liked, I liked the music, except for one thing. The... The, the children, youths, I don't know even, I feel weird calling them children because <laughs> they are by no means children, but that is their characters. They all play their own instruments. And that was, they were so great. I can't emphasize that enough. But Sweetie plays a tambourine. And it just, the 
volume level of the other instruments to the tambourine was just completely off. And it just sounded like somebody was crashing a giant piece of metal against metal in the middle of these lovely songs. And I was like, way less tambourine in this show. Like, just <laughs> cut the tambourine, and this show is infinitely better. Like, cut the white characters and cut the tambourine, and the show's like, wait. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's my summary. <laughs> yeah, I guess what I thought this show was going to be and what it was were pretty different. Because mm. you walk in... And the set is pretty simple. It's a very rustic wooden set. And the back wall had something about how um, it's like black people sit at the back, move to the back of the bus, mm-hmm. something along those lines. And so with that, and Sweetie is biracial. Her mother is white. We don't ever see the dad. And so with those two things, I thought race was going to be a much bigger factor in this show than it was. And I was surprised with the, a group of, you know, students, children of color traveling through the South on a train in the 30s with this huge sign in the background. Racism was not really a big problem for anyone in this show, which surprised me. Like, I felt... It sort of felt like a a Gershwin version of (laughs) events, which isn't necessarily bad, because I kept thinking, I was like, this is like a movie they would have made with Judy Garland. It would have had an all-white cast, (laughs) and they would have done it, you know, about this band, and they play religious music, and then this smooth talker comes along and says, oh, you should be playing jazz in New Orleans, and they're all torn up about it, and how do we convince the minister we want to play real music? Which is a great story, and I love seeing that, but I, I thought that racism or race issues or something were going to be more of a factor. They never really were, which isn't really a bad thing, just surprising to me. And I also want to shout out that uh, the guy who played Cat Jones, fantastic, Jelani Aladdin, is going to be playing Kristoff in Frozen when it moves to Broadway. He's going to be a prince. And he he is. He's like a little Disney prince. He's adorable. Yeah, Yeah, he's great. He was so great. He's going to be really good in that. So that makes me happy. Um, When you were talking, Liz, it reminded me, I think I said that all the children were black. And that's not right, actually. One of them is Asian. I I, I can't be more specific. I don't know what his background is. Jose, what did you think? I wanted to, since you mentioned Jelani, I also wanted to say how much I love Morgan Chauvin Green, who plays like the sassy. Oh, she was like the yeah. other gr- the other female yeah. orphan. There's a, oh, she's great. Yes. great. There's a recurring joke going on between a rivalry, not a joke, a rivalry between her and Sweetie, and for for a joke that gets old by the second time they bring it up, this girl pulled it off every single time, and I loved it. But what you were saying about less tambourine, I felt that this was a musical. With a very, I don't know, like, uh, it, it felt like the book was incomplete, but also Sweetie was the least interesting character. So I guess the less tambourine is a perfect way to describe the yeah, whole thing. Because she was playing the tambourine. Yeah, she, yeah. Uh, yeah, she uh, uh, her backstory was when Sweetie's gone, the show reminded me of Bandstand, which is like one of the most fun I've seen. Uh, one of the most things I've seen on Broadway in a very long time. It's just seeing people play music and play good music. I don't know. I also agree because, like, the very first scene, they mention how some white dudes are trying to put up a Confederate flag, but then the whole like racial issues just vanish, 
and these kids are just walking through states with yeah. no problems. There's even a moment yeah. that I was so surprised where they um, they're hopping on a train and the minister is white. And he leaves to go. He's like, okay, bye. I'll see you guys later. He goes to get a seat. And the rest of them like, pile up in a cattle car in the back. I was like, we're not going to talk about this? Yeah. No one's surprised by this? Or when they're all kidnapped and the minister just sits while the kids work. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it's, it's, you mentioned a Judy Garland movie. But more often than not, it made me think of a cartoon. Because, like, there's a point also where we see Cat Jones coming with a big bag full of instruments. Yeah. Like, who? I don't know. It's, it's a very strange surreal at times hybrid of a musical you know, you know that nothing too terribly bad is going to happen yeah. to any of these people and everyone will be fine at the yeah. end and then they are everything ha- everyone has an epiphany and there's really great music to go with it yeah. well that musical is closed so you can't see it even if you wanted to you can, <laughs> you can see Jelani Aladdin later yes. on Broadway in Frozen keep your eye on him yeah. he's very talented and extremely attractive okay moving on Liz oh alrighty so Cost of Living, which is by Martin, Martina Mayock. Martina Mayock, thank you. That's about four people, two, I don't want to say couples, but two sort of interconnected stories. Two pairs. Two pairs. <laughs> there we go. That's a word of people who are dealing with sort of extraordinary circumstances that they have been put into and um, we have eddie who is the truck driver and his he's reunited with his ex-wife after she's had a major accident and lost both of her legs and they are sort of reconciling their relationship with this new caregiver role that eddie has to take on even though he's they are already separated by the time this accident has taken place. And then on the other end, we have uh, John, who is a very smart, very well-educated student who happens to be in a wheelchair, who is hiring a personal assistant caretaker for him and finds one in Jess, who he sort of dismisses at the beginning as an undereducated woman, and it turns out they went to the same college. Um, Eddie is, or sorry, not Eddie, uh, John is that guy you get in a lot of plays who's the very educated, slightly snobby, you know, cultured upper class guy, but he is now depending on this younger woman. No, I guess not younger, I guess they're about the same age. He's depending on this woman to take care of him. So the play focuses on these two pairs of people learning how to help each other and the way disabled bodies and able bodies move around the move around the world, the way privilege comes into play, I think is huge. Um Jess is a woman of color who is taking care of Eddie. Um, Jess is taking care of John. Eddie uh, is the person of color taking care of Annie, uh, his ex-wife. And it's sort of the way all of those intersectional privileges come together in how we relate to each other in the world. Um, I really enjoyed this play. 
I don't know. Hopefully you guys did. I mean, first off, it's just very refreshing to see people of color and people who are not, uh, people who are disabled on stage together in a very normal and complex way. Um, this is not a play about disabilities. It is a play about how people help each other in very real ways. Um, I had seen a portion of this, uh, the, the story with Jess and John as a one act before. And I really enjoyed that piece on its own, but it does earn something by pairing it with this story of an older couple that is navigating um, their relationship post-marriage in with all of this. And I think the two stories dovetail really nicely together, um, especially when we finally get uh, Jess and Eddie meeting each other. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I think it's a really beautiful, beautifully written piece and just really enjoyed it. I don't know how much else I could say about it. It was refreshing to see characters with disabilities who were also assholes at times. Yes. There were no saints. And we, I think, I think we can all agree that usually when we see characters with disabilities on stage, they're angels. They're, they're perfect people who go around the world being kind and suffering in silence and just, you know, enduring. And the characters with disabilities in this play were at times really horrible people but so were everyone in this i mean not horrible per se but they were just so human they were you know they cursed they had they were horny at times they wanted drinks they were they got pissed it was just so refreshing uh it was it was one of those things where i bet even you know people who were who aren't used to seeing people off color or people with disabilities on stage or in their lives i'm sure there was a time there was a moment in the play when they forgot that they were not watching the same people they're used to watching and then just embrace the characters for their humanity yeah it reminds me a little bit of i love leslie headland plays and i love her plays because in her shows, women are just horrible to each other. <laughs> and I like that they have the space to be mean and gross and all of those things. And similarly in this play, I like what you're saying, like that people, um, people with disabilities get the space to be assholes. John is a dick. He is so <laughs> awful. He makes so many snap judgments. And you can almost tell that he is probably someone, because he was in a wheelchair, has gotten away with a lot. Mm -hmm. And he finally has someone who's calling him on his shit as a human being. And I thought, yes. Um, I and also the, the non-sexual nudity in this show, because part of it is the intimacy of caring for mm. someone. Um, so you do, there is nudity in, in both pieces. But it's so human like i love that jess and john could be having a fight but in the end of the day she has to help him get into the shower so they're fighting but he's also naked and like they're holding each other and it could be it's very intimate but it's not and i i appreciate that a I lot even make jokes about that which i thought were so great yeah like they, they like the characters cut the bullshit tension that audience members might be feeling which yeah. is n completely non-existent and i love that the character of um john 
he's like watching Matthew McConaughey dick character in like a romantic comedy. <laughs> he's horrible. But also at the same time, you're like, yeah, he he can get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's speaking of sensuality, the the bathtub scene with Annie where uh, Eddie has to bathe her, and they're trying to sort of figure out sexuality now that she you know she's relearning her sexuality and i thought it was a really beautiful scene with no real sexual content yeah you guys have said all of that beautifully i don't really have much to add it's a lovely show it's playing through july 16th the tickets are 80 dollars, so it's a little expensive but there are tickets on tdf and they are 30 dollars and 50 cents so check it out there Okay, last show, Jose. So, playwright Jay Stoll. Is it Stoll or Stool? Stoll. Stoll. Okay. Pl- I think playwright Jay Stoll has been, like, inceptioning my brain <laughs> or something like that. Because he came up with a show that feels like I feel like he wrote it just for me. So, thank you very much, Mr. Stoll. The show is called Strip Show. And it's essentially a four-part, so far, uh, series of plays divided like TV episodes in which nine Meryl Streep characters, not, you know, not, not Meryl Streep herself, but nine Meryl Streep characters are put together in uh, the real world slash big brother kind of house where they have to interact with each other and they can, they get eliminated on every episode and the one, the last Meryl standing wins the chance to rewrite her life, which would technically mean rewriting the ending of her movie. A sequel? Yeah. So, yeah, sequel, yeah. So, uh, at first we get nine characters, but there's a huge rotation of characters. So, some of the characters that we get, for instance, are Sophie from Sophie's Choice, Miranda Priestley from The Devil Wears Product, Clarissa Vaughn from The Hours. Uh, Francesca Johnson from the Bridges of Madison County, and I don't I don't even know how to describe this show because it was so much fun. I did you go see all four episodes? Only the first two. Yeah, I just saw the first two. I went to all four, and I just really wanted more because I mean <laughs> it's it's incomplete. Like we didn't get to the to the very end. What I like there were well there were many many things that I liked about the show. First of all, I just wanted to say the entire ensemble was great. So. I don't want to go individually. Everyone was so fantastic. The second thing that I really, really loved about the show is that they, you know, like we hear young people mostly nowadays saying, why go to the theater when there's Netflix? And Jay is reclaiming binging in a theater. So I took my friend who never really goes to the theater. He couldn't wait to go and see episodes three and four the next weekend. And I thought, you know, like that was like a big success for, I don't know, theater all over. The other thing that I really loved was that in doing this show, obviously there's so much Meryl trivia. Like, if you love Meryl Streep, this is going to be like, I don't know, like a huge orgasm in your brain. There's so many references, so many movies, there's so many jokes. Some of some of them are, I, I would love to tell the jokes, but no, like, you, they need to be experienced. But what I love the most is that Jay Stahl is reclaiming also the idea of Meryl Streep, not any actress, but Meryl Streep as an auteur. 
because we hear that directors or screenwriters or even cinematographers are usually the authors of movies. But he is suggesting that it's Meryl who makes all of these movies what they are and why we remember them. She, he is giving Meryl Streep like the quality that that's usually just being reserved for people like Alfred Hitchcock or for Steven Spielberg or Scorsese. So basically, he's giving Meryl the power of a man in being like the center of this universe of creativity that revolves around her. And I don't even know where I'm going with this anymore. But yeah, like he's making Meryl Streep the sun when usually that role is reserved for men. So I really wanted to applaud him especially for that. Besides, I don't know, how happy and gay and campy and just like overall fun the show was. What did you think, Liz? I didn't really like it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I really wanted to like it. And I will, I'll preface this, but I only saw the first two. So there's, there's probably more that I am missing by seeing the rest of it. That said, I think it's a great premise and there are great performers and performances in this. But I kept waiting for it to go to the next level or zoom out or take just it needed to it needed an extra push somewhere um beyond a bunch of quality actors recreating quality performances from Meryl movies. Anyway, I hadn't thought about what you were saying about, you know, men being auteurs and Meryl being this uniting force between a lot of great films that she's the performer. Um but I just felt like it was a sketch premise that was a funny sketch premise that didn't need to be this long. Um, because even though I didn't see all four parts, if you're going to present it in this way with episodes, there needs to be something that wraps up each episode on its own. And I felt like I wasn't getting that. I feel like there were brief touches on it which is why I think maybe it does come up in the third and the fourth but the um, there's like a little blip of awareness where a character realizes that maybe she actually is this Meryl Streep and who is Meryl Streep in this world if Meryl Streep doesn't really exist but there would be a flash of that and then we'd go back to a, a song parody or a joke about Sophie's Choice I, I kept waiting for it to to twist somehow and it just didn't all click together for me was it fun yeah (laughs) but did i need two plus hours of it probably not i think for me the issue was that i am not an expert in meryl streep's body of work Mm -hmm. so there were a couple of characters who i didn't know who they were i couldn't have named the movies they came from i hadn't seen them and there was a handful that i was familiar with and so while i enjoyed the performance it was clear that i wasn't getting half the jokes and i found many things very funny, but not nearly as funny as my fellow audience members. So I think that in some ways this is a show for a specific audience. Yeah. Um, It's not accessible to everyone if you have 
not a lot of familiarity. Like, I think you have to have more familiarity with her body of work than you would absorb through just being alive in popular culture. Like, you have to have actually seen these movies to really get it. Like, I haven't seen The Hours, and The Hours character plays a huge role in this show. And so, like, every time she was talking, and there are all these jokes, and it was, like, so funny, and I was like, I'm not getting it. Um, But I do think it's very funny, and I'm really glad that I saw it. It is is long, like you said, because you sit through two episodes, which are each a little over 45 minutes long, Mm -hmm. I would say. So, you know. Did it make you want to see the hours? Definitely not. <laughs> oh, really? Because that's something... Because I was thinking, I mean, some jokes maybe... Uh, yeah, like, if you haven't seen the movies, maybe some jokes will be like, what the fuck? But I, w- I was wondering, if you haven't seen the movies, does, is this a show that makes you want to see the movies? It made me want to see Postcards from the Edge. Oh, which is so great. Like, because basically, I mean, my friend hadn't seen Postcards from the Edge either, and I basically told him, just imagine it's Carrie Fisher, which is what... The, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. But also, I I, I also loved how he is. Uh, it, it made me think of this like the greatest. Like if if there was like some sort of a PhD in Streep, like this would be like the perfect thesis because mm. he's also like establishing dialogues between so many of her movies. I mean, I love what he does with the hours and Kramer versus Kramer, for instance, where he's proposing that the hours has this like whole background of, you know, it's a women's only movie basically. And he's proposing that the character that Meryl played in Kramer vs. Kramer went on in a way to become the character that she plays in The Hours. And I, I just found this to be so beautiful for some reason. And also The Hours. The Hours is by far my favorite Meryl Streep performance. And when you were saying that you haven't seen The Hours, it reminded me of how funny it was. And I, I would love to ask Jay, so if you're listening, answer to us on Twitter. Uh, I wanted to ask Jay, there's a moment in The Hours, which is also one of my favorite books, where uh, the Clarissa character is walking down the street in New York. Have you read The Hours? I, I read the hours. No. Um, I, I fell asleep during The Hours movie, so oh, okay. we're, we're just at opposite ends of this okay. street spectrum. But anyway, there's this wonderful moment in the, in the book that I, I wonder if this is where Jay even got the idea to make the play, where Clarissa Vaughn is walking in New York City, where she's running some errands, and she sees a trailer because uh, you know, they're shooting a movie. And the character within the book wonders if Meryl Streep is in that trailer. And then Meryl Streep ended up playing Clarissa in the Hours movie. So I, when I watched the movie, I was like, is there going to be the scene with the trailer where she wonders if Meryl Streep's in a trailer? <laughs> so I guess Streep Show is the result of that. <laughs> That's very Ocean's 12 with Julia Roberts. Oh, yeah. Right. I do want to emphasize the performers in this show are so fantastic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's half drag, and they're just so fantastic. Everyone in the cast is so great, and uh, yeah, they're just really, really wonderful. I mean, the the person who plays the Julia Child's role. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so <laughs> funny. I mean, God, what that man does with a banana and then a stick of butter is <laughs> unbelievable. Yes. Unbelievable. And also the, the man who plays Miranda Priestly. I mean, I guess he really has the most uh, to chew. Preston Martin, that's yeah, his name. lots to chew on. Uh, lots to chew on. but And Todd Briscoe is when he played Julia Child. 
Okay, what do you guys have coming up? There's just one thing I want to emphasize that I have on my calendar, which is God of Obsidian, which is a play by Mac Rogers, who we cover a lot on this podcast and Mm -hmm. even have an interview with. His company, Gideon Productions, that includes him as playwright, Jordana Williams as director, has a short three-day run of this play. They just did it at a, a fringe type festival in i believe cincinnati and now it will be here in new york on june 15th june 21st and june 30th uh the tickets are only 20 dollars. i think they are a little hard to come by but last i checked they were not sold out i i'm going to see that later this week i'm seeing fulfillment center at mtc and assassins i just got my assassins ticket wow and oh, I'm gonna go see Marvin's room next week. And in a couple of weeks, in July, I'm gonna go see Betty Odessa by our friend of the podcast, Kev Barry. Which I'm especially excited about because it is based on a murder story that I really love from Texas that I was telling Kev about. And I sent him a big article. I was like, you have to read all this. And then he was like, I'm writing this play. And I got very excited. Oh, wow. So I want to see how he's going to bring... Uh, it's the, the Kiss Me and Kill Me murder uh, in Texas, if you're a person who likes to read about murder, which I do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you're the second person this weekend who I've heard has a favorite murder story. <laughs> you know there's a whole podcast about that, right? I'm like, Well, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, okay. Maybe I should, I should pick one of my own. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, that's all I got. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, it's summer, and all I want to do is like be inside a pool or inside a fridge or like living in an ice cube. So one of the things that has got me the most excited is New George's and Three-Legged Dog are doing Works on Water, which is this whole series of performances and an exhibit at Three-Legged Dog involving water and how much water is a part of, you know, not only living in New York, but also who we are, because we're made of water, blah, 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 blah. But also, they have a play. They ha- like, I went to the exhibit. It's so much fun. You get to, like, climb on stuff. And, like, use, really? you used to, oh. like, use binoculars to, like, find stuff. And they have, like, link, like, the, the, the exhibits, the, the, the pieces in a gallery are linked to real-life things in the real world so you can like go to like do stuff in like long island city that's related to that they're gonna have like performances by battery park and the financial district and they also have a play to go with the show called not water so i mean if you want it's like i don't know like a sprinkler time or whatever so go see this event awesome well thank you guys very much that's a wrap for today bye-bye Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Max Smooth Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. Liz is at Miss Liz Richards. Jose is at Jose Solis Mayen. And I am at Lindsay Barons. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. Thank you. Theatrical Media.